All right. Well, good morning to everyone here in the auditorium and everyone in the venue today. So grateful that you've chosen to worship with us today. A lot of great stuff going on in the church, and uh, you can see that, as Jordan just noted on this handout. I appreciate the wonderful events that are to come and encourage you to take advantage of some of them as you're able. My name is Adrian, and I'm the lead pastor here at Carney E. Free. If we haven't yet met, I'd love to connect with you after the service. Uh, at this church, what we're about is building a transformational community that is uh, fully devoted to loving God and loving others in a really, really great way. Building a transformational community that is seeking to um, grow in love with Christ in all we do, grow in love with God's people in all we do, that we'd be devoted to that. And we're building that up here, and uh, I'm so grateful, though, that you chose to be a part of that with us today. But let me ask you this question real quickly as we begin. Uh, would you raise your hand if you were here uh, this weekend at any point for the Saturate Conference? Okay, a lot of people here in the auditorium. I'm sure many people in the venue as well. Keep your hand raised really high if it was encouraging at some point for you. Okay, it really was for me. Now, one more question. Keep your hand raised really, really high if it was overwhelming for you at times. Okay. Very overwhelming for me at times, I must admit. Uh, the, the thing about a conference like that, I, I want to share that with everyone, even though I know only a portion of us while we're here, but the thing about a conference like that, and even a sermon on Sunday morning, is you can't take it all with you. You have to pick and choose which things you can apply right now. And I would just encourage those of you who went to that, and, and frankly here on Sunday morning for all of us, I, I will offer many applications on a regular basis while when I teach but there are going to be times that the application is just for you, and other times the application is not just for you. It's for someone else, and that's okay. But if you went to the Saturate Conference, I would encourage you, along with your leadership, along with your life group, along with your leaders who are over your area of ministry, process together what is one takeaway. What's just one takeaway? Because if we try to do everything at once, when we hear a conference, we get overwhelmed. I certainly do. But if you do one thing at a time, one next step, that's what we want to be after. So I, I just encourage you, particularly in life groups, to, uh, to process well with your leaders. What, what's one next step, one takeaway? Again, as we are seeking to build a transformational community here. The last thing we want to E-free is just to get bigger and bigger for the sake of being bigger and bigger and feel really good about ourselves. Right? Can I get an amen? What we want is transformation, which happens through the Spirit of God. As we lean into him and we grow in community together, and that's what we long for here at this church, and I pray that you can experience some of that. I missed being with you last weekend. I took a weekend to rest and go worship with another church in our community, and it was a joy to sit under some great teaching in another church in our community, and so thankful for the other pastors who teach the gospel, teach from the scriptures here in this town, and the, the fellowship that, that we have with many of the pastors in this community but I'm very grateful to be back with you. I miss being with you, but I was glad to be gone last Sunday. Now I'm glad to be back with you. <laughs> it's good to see you all again, your smiling faces. Okay, do, do you have, last question before I get started, do you have a verse or a chapter or a passage in Scripture that you love to go back to over and over again that serves like as a cornerstone for your life? Things can be all out of whack in your life, but you go back to this and it's like, oh, that's an ancient spring that gives me living water again and again. I hope you have a few of those that can help settle your soul when things begin 
to get overwhelming or you, you start to say, I'm not sure what I should be doing, you go back to those and you say, this is what God wants me to do. I have a number of those passages and, and one of them is Luke chapter 4, which I'm going to preach on this morning. It's an ancient spring for me, if you will, a spring of living water that no matter how many times I read this passage, it reminds me what I want to be about in my ministry. And whether I was a pastor or not, this is the kind of life that I want to live. And I return to it on a regular basis just to help me stay grounded, to give me a cornerstone from the lips of Jesus on the kind of ministry that he would like me to be about. I encourage you to read Luke 4, verses 14 through 30 in full later on today. But if you would right now, both here in the auditorium and in the venue, if you just put on your imagination caps with me. And I'm going to ask you to imagine this story as I kind of tell it to you. And this is a beautiful portrait of our Lord. And if you can imagine that we are first century worships, worshipers in the little town of Nazareth. And the year is A.D. 30. And it's now Saturday morning, which would be the Sabbath. The Sabbath began on Friday evening at sundown. And Saturday morning you go to synagogue with your family. And, and you've walked together from your village to the synagogue. And there's maybe 25 or 30 of us in that little synagogue. It's a single room, limestone building. Limestone is prevalent in that part of the world with a thatched roof hut over it. And you don't have any coffee this morning, unfortunately. There's no coffee bar outside the synagogue. But you don't have any TV either. So we've all got a great night of rest. And we're refreshed and we're ready for worship. Again, use your imagination with me. Okay, we're refreshed and ready for worship. We didn't stay up late, but because as soon as the candles went out, as soon as the sun went down, that meant it was time for bed. And so we're, we're refreshed now. We're ready for worshiping God. And there, there's this, this buzz around the synagogue though, this morning. And as people are, are filing in, they're, they're talking to each other and they're saying, did you hear that the young teacher is coming to teach us? It's very rare that we would have a rabbi from our nobody town called Nazareth. And there's this rabbi that's been going around the other towns around Galilee and he's been teaching. And the word is he's been doing these, these wonders, these miracles and miraculous signs. And, and so we all get to the synagogue early that morning and we find our little floor mats. We sit on the straw mats and ladies are on one side of the room and gentlemen are on the other side of the room. And mothers are in the back holding their kids and seeking to keep them quiet. But there's this excitement in the room as they see Yeshua. And they wonder what he might teach them. And the worship service begins with an attendant who is responsible for the scrolls. And the scroll attendant well, would take uh, the scrolls from Torah from the first five books of Moses, out of the closet, out of the safe where they are kept in safekeeping because unlike us, the only Bible this little village of Nazareth has are those scrolls. That's where they keep the Hebrew Scriptures and they pull them out and they're the most treasured possession for the community. And they'd read them in large parts on Saturday morning. And so the scroll attendant has already read from Deuteronomy or Exodus or perhaps fought from Genesis from the law of Moses. And at this moment, uh, Jesus stands up. Yeshua stands up and, 
And he pulls open yet another scroll. He gets the scroll of Isaiah, which is just a, a giant, monstrous scroll, 66 chapters. And he opens it up, puts it on the table to the portion in Isaiah chapter 61, where it says simply, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to release the oppressed, to provide recovery of sight to the blind, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And at this moment, he then hands the scroll back to the attendant. And if there was ever a mic drop in the ancient world, this was it. As he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Bam is right. As I heard someone just say, bam. Uh, Messiah is here, he says. The scripture is fulfilled in your hearing and in my telling it to you. And as the custom would be in that ancient world, at this time, the teacher, after reading from the scroll, would sit down. And I'm not going to sit down too long because you may not be able to see me and my knees are kind of creaky. So again, just imagine with me. He sits down and he begins preaching to them. Again, from this passage from Isaiah chapter 61. And they're amazed at what he said. And he speaks with authority as he speaks to them. But they're a little bit perplexed that he would give this mic drop. Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus? I mean, you're, you're Joseph's son. You're the son of a carpenter. We all know who you are. And yeah, you're, you're clearly very intelligent, and you seem to speak with a surprising authority. We're not sure where you got all of this. But today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing? Who do you think you are? I mean, we remember when you were in diapers, Jesus. We remember when you got in all those fights with your little brothers James and Jude. And it was curious to us how you always seemed to win all those arguments. <laughs> but you're using Messiah language now. What is going on? What are you talking about? And, and, and Jesus knows what's in their heart in this moment. That uh, part of the commentary around this passage is what they're longing for is not for Messiah as he is, not God as he is, but God as someone who will do something for their amusement who will bring a little sign or bring a little miracle, bring a little wonder for their amusement. And he sees what's in their heart in this moment. And so he goes on to give a couple illustrations of God's great rescue plan so as to tell his first century audience that, yes, the rescuer is here, but it's, it's not what you thought. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Jesus, show us a sign. Prove yourself. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land and there was no rain, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian military 
leader. So now perhaps there's a few in the audience who are scratching their heads and saying, wow, this wasn't exactly the message that we were expecting today. And a few others, if you read on, aren't just scratching their, their heads. They're standing up. They're getting ticked. And fists are now clenched. And beads of sweat are going down their back. And they're grinding their teeth together. And the next thing you see is them saying to Jesus, get out of our synagogue. Who do you think you are using Messiah language and then applying it to these outsiders? And then maybe a couple dozen of them start to go after him. And they rush him out of the synagogue and they go to a well-known cliff on the outside of town in Nazareth. And in perhaps the only miracle that Jesus does in the Gospels for his own protection, on his own behalf, he secrets away from them and kind of quietly walks to another village while they're looking around. Where'd he go? Where'd he go? He walks to another village who will receive him as he is, not merely for what he will do for them. Do you hear? Now, why were they so scandalized? Why were they so angered by this message? In essence, they were perplexed and they were angered because Jesus is saying here that Messiah has come to offer redemption to the very people that you hate. Do not miss this. This is what he's saying. The very people that you hate, guess what? Messiah has come to offer redemption to them as well. What they hear from Jesus in this moment is the reach of God's ministry, the reach of Jesus' ministry is wider than they would have imagined. Let me set the stage here just a little bit to provide a bit of context. Many of you will know this, but if you're newer to the Bible, it'll be helpful for you to understand that in the first century world, Jews were second-class citizens. By A.D. 30, Jews had been in captivity to many other foreigners for over 700 years. First to the Assyrians, and then to the Babylonians, and then to the Persians, and now to the Romans. We talked about all that this past summer as we worked through the book of Daniel. And in each case, they were second-class citizens without a vote, without much of a voice. And so the question from faithful Jews naturally was, how can we gain deliverance from these foreign empires who have made us second class. And the longing of most faithful Jews at the time that Jesus came to earth was probably somewhat similar to the longing of the, the Boston Tea Party at the eve of the Revolutionary War. Remember the Boston Tea Party would say, uh, no taxation without representation. And, and they were saying, in essence, we want our freedom. We want equality under the law. So also it was for the Jews. And understandably, they would say, give us freedom. And what that morphed into over the years was a selective reading of so many Old, Te Old Testament passages in which they would choose which passages to apply and which ones to kind of conveniently ignore and say, these are the passages that relate to Messiah coming and he will come and provide deliverance, not from sin, not from our personal issues, but deliverance from our enemies. And what they had begun to anticipate by the time Jesus came in the first century was a Messiah who would come like a political revolutionary, if you will, 
on steroids to kick butt and take names. And then he's coming for me and my kind. And he's going to take you down. And there was an exclusivity that developed such that many of the people of God didn't believe that Messiah would even come for others outside of their immediate community. They just missed it in the process of, of adopting this very intense exclusivity. Now, to be sure, Jesus maintains an exclusive tone in his message, does he, does he not? It, I mean, throughout his message, Jesus maintains an exclusive tone. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on, on me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And today this scripture is fulfilled in my saying it and in your hearing it. There's still a very exclusive tone to Jesus' message because the road is still narrow and he has a name. His name is Jesus. You know that. Okay, the road is not many. The road is one. His name is Jesus. But what they missed in the midst of that exclusivity is that God would, would cast the net wider than they were expecting. That though there would be one name and there would be one God, there would be one name by which you would get to God, so that name would be the Savior for all people at all times, extended out to all different nations. By noting God's provision to a Syrian military leader like Naaman and a widow from Sidon, he is casting the net wide. Now, this shouldn't have been a surprise to God's people. Had they read the prophets carefully, they looked at Isaiah, they looked at Ezekiel, they looked at Jeremiah, they looked at Hosea. If they read the prophets seriously and carefully, they would see that God was going to send a Savior for the world to deliver us from the captivity of sin. And it wouldn't just be for one group of people, it would be for all groups of people, all peoples. Hosea 2.23, for example, says this, I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and I am your God. I will say to Gentiles, to the other nations, those currently called not my people in the Old Testament, you are my people, and guess what? I'm your God too. There's one God, and I've come for all the nations. But by the time of Jesus' day, a foreign widow and a foreign Syrian military leader and people who were impoverished and disabled and imprisoned, and under captivity, and many, many other groups, many other non-Jewish groups, would be not candidates for being God's people. Let me say that another way. They would not be candidates for God's blessing. The expectation from the different religious leaders of the day was, uh, God is going to come for the Jews and the Jews only. He doesn't care about all of those other people. And we've talked about this a number of times in this series, such that Pharisees of the day were even fond of giving this prayer of thanksgiving, which I've already shared once, but I'll share it again for this purpose today. This prayer of thanksgiving, I thank my God that I am not like this Gentile, like this person from all the other nations. I thank my God that I am not a woman who is also considered second class, in that culture actually third class, because she's not a Roman, She's not a Jewish man. Thank my God I'm not a woman, they would say. And I thank my God that I'm not a dog. This was their prayer. It's so hideous, so awful. They totally missed it. But this is the prayer that they were praying at the time that Jesus arrived. 
I think this is so significant for us to understand that as long as we are focusing on other people's sins, other people's failures, other people's differences, we are likely to miss God's desire for them. Do you realize that? Look in the mirror, don't look out the window. As long as we are focusing on other people's differences and other people's failures, we are likely to miss God's desire for them and the very distinct possibility that God would use us to reach them. Here at the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus invites, are you poor? Are you rich? Are you able-bodied or disabled? Are you imprisoned? Do you commit the socially acceptable sins or do you commit the socially unacceptable sins? Are you gay? Are you straight? Are you black or white? Hispanic or Asian? Are you Republican or are you Democrat? Do you struggle in this way or in that way? Well, guess what? The kingdom of God is for you too. The kingdom of God is extended for you as well and every person that you can think of in any one of those categories. He came for them also. This is the message of our God. Jesus says, I come for you as you are even to a Syrian military leader who would oppress my people. The scope of God's deliverance was far wider than they would have preferred. One of my mentors was a man named Walt Baker. And Walt was a professor of missions at Dallas Theological Seminary. I didn't go to that seminary. I went to Denver Seminary. But after he was professor of missions at Dallas, he came to the church that I used to pastor in, uh, in, in, in Colorado. And so if you can imagine, every Sunday I had to preach to this professor of missions. Ugh. <laughs> I, I would look at him, and he would look at me, and I was like, I should just shut down, sit down and shut up. And you, come on back up here, Walt. You take care of this. But he was a wonderful teacher, still is a wonderful teacher. He was 84 years old, and he continues to preach many different places. He gets invited to go preach all over the nation. And he was a missionary with his wife for a couple decades in Haiti. And his expertise was, was missions, and it still is. And he'll regularly go teach at different churches about God's ongoing work across the world and the amazing work that God is doing even as the church gets persecuted. And sometimes, specifically in those places where the church is being opposed, God is most growing disciples, even as the church seems to be shrinking in many parts of the West. And he shared with me this story that he was at a church in West Texas, and he was giving that message. And he explained in the context of the message that, you know, if Jesus were to come back today, there would actually be far more people of color that would go up with him to the sky if he were to come back today because of the way that the church is advancing in such miraculous ways in Latin America and in Africa. If he were to come down and get his church today, there'd be far more black and brown folks going with him than white folks. To which there was a woman in the back of the room who stood up and exclaimed, oh no! <laughs> she wasn't supposed to say that. That, that's what the audience, I just share that story because that's what the audience in Nazareth would have said when Jesus gives this message to the poor, to the blind, to the prisoners, to the disabled, to a Sidonian widow, to Naaman, the Syrian military leader. Oh no, they would have said. We're going to get you out of this synagogue and take you to the edge of town where we'll take care of you. 
Now, fortunately, that's not our issue. At least I don't believe that's our issue. I could be wrong, but I don't think that's our issue here at Carnegie Free. As I've been evaluating things, I'm so grateful for the unity that we experience here at this church across many differences, across age and uh, uh, generational and economic differences that we have, even across some of the racial differences. I'm so, so grateful for, for the unity that we experience. But it's a good caution for us, and it's a strong reminder for us that when Jesus came, he was shouting, no one is beyond the long arm of our Lord. The reach of Jesus' ministry was far wider than they had imagined. And so, the result is, the reach of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' type ministry, will be far messier than we imagined. If you want to engage in Jesus' type ministry, it will be far messier than we have imagined. Luke 4 reminds us that Jesus' deliverance is comprehensive. It reminds us that his ministry is far messier than we would have preferred. You look at these words up on the screen from Luke 4, 18 and 19, and if you look carefully at them, they read like a mission statement. There's a number of different times in the Gospels that Jesus offers a statement that reads like a mission statement. He says, this is why I have come. Again, let your eyes sit on those. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. I've come for this purpose, uh, to provide newfound sight for those who are blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It reads just like a mission statement. He says, this is why I have come. It's really fascinating. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 61, where Jesus is quoting out of, and you read verses 1 and 2, you know that he actually omitted an additional line in this statement. And you can go back and read that later, but in the Isaiah 61 verse 2 passage, the final line which he doesn't include is, and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Now, isn't that interesting that Jesus didn't include that as he's beginning his public ministry, and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. I wonder why that might be that he didn't include that day of vengeance. Could it be because God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through his Son? And that Jesus, when he went to the cross, took on the vengeance of God for our sake? How great is our God, such that Jesus now says at the dawn of his ministry, I don't come to proclaim the vengeance of our God, but I come to proclaim freedom for all of these groups. Oh, that's a good time to say amen. Oh. Now, if you look at that passage once more, take a look at that. And I just wonder if you've spent much time, and I have to ask myself, when is the last time that I've spent much time working with this kind of people? Have I spent much time working with, with those who are really, really poor? Have I spent much time serving those who are in prison? Have I spent much time serving single parents? Have I spent much time caring for those who are disabled, those maybe who are mentally disabled or physically disabled? Or have I even spent much time caring about that neighbor I know of down the street who's going through a very rough patch in their marriage and they may not make it out? Now, if we choose to do any of those kinds of ministries, it's going to be messier than we imagined, right? It's going to be messier than we have preferred. But this was Jesus. This is who he was. Because he reveals to us who God is. 
Throughout this series, though, that's what we're looking at. Who is God and how does Jesus reveal to us what God is like? And this is the very revelation of who God is, as Jesus says, today, this scripture applied to God, applied to Messiah, it is fulfilled in your hearing. The kingdom of God has come, and it looks like that. It looks like freedom. It looks like deliverance. It looks like recovery. It looks like good news. It looks like good news. Now, I, I'm aware that, that many churches don't want to wrestle with this. There are many churches out there that only want to preach on spiritual realities and our need for eternity in heaven, our need for atonement and forgiveness of sin. And I can understand why you'd want to focus on that because that is our greatest need. Make no mistake, to be forgiven and to gain eternity in heaven, to experience heaven now, but also to gain eternity in heaven when we die, that is our greatest need. But it makes ministry neat and tidy because it ignores some 2,000 verses across the Bible that care for the margins of society. 2,000 verses. And then there are other churches that only want to focus on social evils or addiction or helping people emotionally to get over the heartache of their lives or helping people who seem to be under a weight of oppression. And I get that too because it keeps ministry neat and tidy. If you focus there, then you don't have to tell anyone that they need to repent. If you focus there, though, then you don't need to tell anyone that eternity is at stake, that there are actually eternal realities. Who can give thanks to God that he is so much more brilliant than any church teacher? Jesus doesn't say either or. Got any students in this room, middle school or high school or college students? You take those multiple choice tests, A, I'll go with that, B, I'll go with C, that's a clear answer. What is letter D? That's Jesus. I want the whole enchilada, Jesus says. I've come to bring jubilee. I've come to bring abundant life. I want all the above. I want spiritual deliverance, yes. I want forgiveness of sins, yes. I want emotional healing, yes. I want to care for you in your physical needs. I want to put the lonely into a spiritual family, yes to all of the above. I'm coming to bring jubilee and abundant life. This is our God. And friends, this is why this is such a cornerstone passage for me. It becomes a corrective when I focus only on spiritual needs. And it becomes a corrective when I focus only on emotional or physical needs. It becomes a corrective when I think only of good deeds. It becomes a corrective when I think only of good news. No, it's both and. God doesn't promise to remove all of our pains, even as he says here that he comes to bring Release to those who are captive. We know in many other places in the scripture that we will go through great pain and God will use the great pain that we go through to refine us and to develop in us a hope and a perseverance and a character and that's for our own good. But sometimes God will. And so we pray for that too because who knows what the Holy Spirit might do. We ask God for emotional deliverance and spiritual deliverance and even physical deliverance because he seems to offer that out as well. The reach of Jesus' ministry was complex and messy. And so also because of that, the reach of our ministry is far messier than we could have imagined. Which shouldn't surprise any of us, right? Because we deal in the currency of people. I mean, I look in the mirror, I'm pretty messy. How about you? 
I do an audit of my life, as I regularly do. I'll go down at night and I'll say, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting because there's a mess right in the middle of here. Ministry is messy because it deals with people like me. And you too, I might add. <laughs> Last week, Susie and I received a letter from missionaries that we support in Turkey. And uh, these are dear friends of ours that we've supported for many, many years. In fact, she was a, a close, close uh, friend of Susie's growing up, came from an atheist family. And uh, she, she saw from Susie a beautiful portrait of genuine Christianity. She saw from Susie a beautiful portrait of what, what a difference it makes from Susie's family, what it looks like to live in a Christian family. And she was so amazed by that portrait that she wanted some of that. And now today she's a missionary serving the, the city of Cappadocia, Turkey, that's at the very cradle of Christian civilization, but now today has three million people and almost no Christians. Almost no Christians. And so she's a, she's a missionary there well, with her husband, and they're seeking to build churches and build Christians and uh, and, and also to, to serve refugees. And they, they sent us a letter last week, and it reads like this. Hi, dear ones. And I might break down here. I just wanted to let you know that yesterday, Thanksgiving Day, our homeschool helper, Sarah and Afshin, our Iranian friend and their parents, were driving to the underground city. It's a common tourist site nearby. And they came upon a gravel field of close to 100 tents, full of Syrian refugees. Men, women, teenagers, and lots and lots of kids. It's very cold here right now, down in the 20s at night. Our friends stopped and talked with them for a while, said they have no stoves, only piles of coal for fires. The people asked for blankets. Some kids had no shoes. So many children and so little food. Talk about a reality check for Thanksgiving and our feasts. We have sleeping bags in our attic, extra shoes in our drawers, money in our bank account. It was hard for me to sleep last night knowing that they are out there in the cold trying to keep their babies warm only minutes from our house. I guess I want to share with you this because it's my sadness and I want to share that with you. It's part of humanity, isn't it? To suffer with those who suffer. Listen to that. It's part of humanity, isn't it, to suffer with those who suffer. Even if it makes us uncomfortable for a little while, I guess that's better than nothing. I hope and believe that Chris and I, by God's help, will be able to help them in tangible ways soon. But ugh, I just wanted to share my burden with you. These are real people in real tarps, in real weather, with real children who have real runny noses right now. Moms and dads who can't pull their kids out of daily suffering can't offer them a future. So I guess I'm inviting you to feel that for a minute with us and to pray, if you would. Love, Kai and Chris. Well, I guess that counts as messy ministry. <laughs> and I don't share that to feel guilty about all that I have or for you to feel guilty about all that you have. And I don't share that to say that we can all be all things to every cause imaginable. We can't. Lord knows we can't, and we shouldn't expect ourselves to do so. That just produces more guilt, and it's not motivating. But it's stories like that that remind me there are messy people around me, and God calls all of us to bloom right where we're planted. 
And I'm not going to be all things to all people. I'm not going to invest in every cause. But who is it that God has put around me in my neighborhood, in my workplace, with my classmates or with my coworkers? Who are one or two that God would invite me to invest in? And Susie and I are wrestling with that right now. We recognize that he's brought an international student into our lives. We recognize he's brought a few neighbors into our lives. And, and these folks from Syria are not our flesh and blood neighbors. Maybe they will be for a few of you. They're not going to be for me. But I know I must wrestle with who are my flesh and blood neighbors who are a bit messy. And so I'd invite you to perhaps, as an application from Luke chapter 4, uh, pray with me. For one. And pursue one even this Christmas? Who's one person in your sphere of influence that God would want you to pursue? Who is one per person in your neighborhood or in your community that God would want you to pray for? And go after them. Go after them for the glory of God and for the good of their future. Go after them. Pray and pursue and don't give up. We give up far too easily. And perhaps you would invite them to Christmas Eve and they will hear the gospel message. And perhaps beyond that, you'd invite them into your home. And perhaps beyond that, as you get to know them, you get to know them really well, you'll start to see some mess. But you'll choose to stay in their lives even in spite of the mess because God has called us into the mess. I love how Pastor Kevin put it a month ago when he was preaching on the fact that God comes to us in the midst of our mess that uh, we would love if God would just relieve us of all of our suffering, but what he does instead is come to us in the midst of our suffering, and there's glory in the midst of the mess. And one of the greatest messages that I heard yesterday from Jeff Vanderstelt, and it's one that I'm going to preach again and again from the stage, is whatever our good God has done to you, he wants to do through you. Whatever it is that our good God has done to you, he has brought you into the family of God, he has made you a child of God. He has given you the Holy Spirit. He has purchased you by his blood and given you forgiveness. He has filled you and he's promised never to leave you or forsake you. He has promised you eternity in heaven and whatever he has done to you, so also he wants to do through you. That we would be a conduit of his warmth. Never a stopper. Always a conduit of his warmth and his love for others. Now that's going to look different for all of us. Lord knows it will. But again, I, I love this passage, Luke 4, and I return to it again and again. And I will as I, pr as I pray and pursue the people that God has put in my life. But I, I return to it again and again because it reminds me that it's, it's both. It's good deeds and it's good news. It's uh, for people inside the church. And to the surprise of the Israelites, it's for people outside the church. It's for people like you and people who are not like you, which means that it'll be far messier than we could have imagined. But thanks be to God, this kind of ministry, if you choose to engage in letter D, multiple choice, all the above type ministry, it's far thicker, it's far more exciting. It's far more invigorating. It bears far more fruit than we could possibly imagine either. You want to do that with me? Let's go after it this, this Christmas, would you? Pray for one and pursue one. Would you do that with me?
in the venue, they're all saying yes right now because in the auditorium, I'm not hearing anything. We're going to do this together and see what our great God does here on Christmas Eve and thereafter as he uses us in the lives of those in our community on Sunday morning and then on Monday morning. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, you are such a kind and loving and generous God. How I thank you, Father, that it's not your, your vengeance or your wrath that leads us to repentance. It's your kindness, as the scriptures say, that leads us to repentance. Oh, how I thank you, Father, that you sent your Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, to care for us holistically, to care for us spiritually and physically and emotionally. And I know that there are many people in this room today who need that from you. And I'm talking about reaching out, but there are some people who need you to reach in. So Jesus, would you do that for them right now? Would you use us around this room to reach into those who are in need of a touch, a tangible touch of your love today? I pray they would know if they've come here alone, they need not leave this place alone, but we'd love to get them connected in community. And Father, I pray right now for all of those that we're thinking of. There's hundreds of names floating around our minds right now of men and women that we would love to know the kindness and the grace and the mercy of Christ that is extended to all people. So we pray for them in advance. There may be some of those in this very room. We pray for them right now. God, that you would quicken our hearts that we would all desire to get to know you more. Thank you, Lord, that you invite us not simply to receive, but also to be conduits of your love, to go on mission for your purposes. Would you use us for that this Christmas? We ask in the mighty name of Jesus. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. I'm just going to respond in song for a moment here as Mary plays on the piano. and I'm going to sit up front here. And if you'd like someone to pray with, I'll be here. I know we have a few of our deacon and deaconess teams, a number of them love to pray as well. And you can come use them if you'd like to pray over anything that was stated. And after a moment or two, Tim and the team will lead us in worship. I really need God's help in this. I don't know about you. I really need God's help.